you have your Bible, please open it to John chapter 12 as we continue our series, Believe and Live, through John's Gospel. Last week, our passage opened with people wanting to discover Jesus. Sir, we would see Jesus, the Greeks said to Philip. Where's he at? They wanted to have an interview with him and ask some serious questions. And then the passage ended last week with Jesus being indiscoverable. He went and hid himself from them. And that hiding was, as we closed last week, we said a parable of judgment. Jesus said, while you have the light, believe in the light. And then as it were, the light slipped away from them and they were in total darkness. So last week, Jesus mentioned words of judgment. Darkness would overtake you if you don't believe in the light. And then this week, and Lord willing, next week, John explains the judgment. The question beneath the passage, John doesn't say the question. He doesn't write it down for us. But the question beneath the passage today is, why don't people believe in Jesus? Particularly the Jews of Jesus' day, why don't people believe? Did God not do enough? We've already seen in John's gospel up to this point the repetition of signs and the frequency of words that validate that Jesus is the long-awaited Savior. We've seen seven signs as John lays them out of Jesus' glory and majesty that it is indisputably a fact. He is God. We've also heard the words and the gracious teaching of the Lord Jesus and falling from His lips, as it were, an ointment of mercy into the hearts of people. But nevertheless, in light of the signs and in light of the words, people wouldn't believe. And as I said, today's question is why not? Our passage picks up in verse 37 of John chapter 12. We'll read down through verse 43, and we see the first answer to the question, why won't they believe? And Lord willing, next Sunday we'll see the second answer. Today's answer is because God had predicted it. The Old Testament says so. Let your eyes fall on verse 37 of John chapter 12. Hear the word of the living God. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and has hardened their heart so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. Verse 41, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him, but... Because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue for 
They loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. Join me at the throne of grace. Father, please arrest us with the glory of Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen. At the end of last week's passage, I mentioned that Jesus was undiscoverable. You can see that in verse 36. These things Jesus spoke and he went away and hid himself from them. That's how last week's passage ended. In today's passage, John begins to explain. He begins to preach. He begins to sermonize. He begins to expound on the judgment that Jesus had spoken of in the previous passages. The core question John is answering is, again, why doesn't Israel believe in their Messiah? Seven signs, gracious teaching, and still they reject Jesus. Why? And we can personalize it. If any of you have yet to throw your helpless soul into the arms of the Almighty Jesus, why have you not yet believed the gospel? Has God not done enough for you? Why do people reject Jesus? Why? R.C. Sproul wrote about our passage, John does not settle for reporting here. Previously, he had been reporting. He's telling us what Jesus said. But here he doesn't, Sproul says, settle for reporting. He goes on to editorializing, providing an explanation for why so many people rejected Jesus despite his miracles, his authoritative teaching. Even the audible testimony of the Father from heaven. You guys remember last week? God the Father shouted from heaven. And still people don't believe. At the beginning of chapter 12, we saw a few weeks ago, only Mary understood the anointing of Jesus in preparation for his gospel labors, his death, his burial. The next part of chapter 12, just a couple of weeks back, we saw that only Jesus understood his triumphal entry. Last week, we saw that only Jesus understood the Father's voice from heaven. In today's text, John commences to explaining why no one else sees the beaming light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus the Messiah. Why can't people see when the sun is one centimeter from your face? Why do people reject Jesus? That's what today's passage is all about. We have one point for the message, and you'll be pleased to know there's several sub-points. The rejection of Jesus, here's our point, is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. We must start with the hinge of the passage. It's one word in the original. It's the in order that hinge. It's in verse 38. It repeats in a way in verse 39. The New American Commentary said of the word that opens, verse 38, usually translated by many English translation as the word T-O, to. Some, your Bible may say at the beginning of verse 38, to fulfill. New American uh, American Commentary says it certainly seems to carry the purposive or telic, telos, end, reason, goal, aim, the telic 
sense of in order that. It's not just to. It's not just to fulfill. It's in order that. Similarly, another commentary accents this hinge by saying, although the Greek conjunction henna, that's the word, sometimes has resultative force, the meaning here would then be that the unbelief of the people resulted in the fulfillment of the Old Testament, not that it occurred, their unbelief, in order that the Old Testament prophecy might be fulfilled. Did their not believing result to fulfill the Old Testament, or did their not believing happen because the Old Testament said that they would not? The commentary that I'm citing goes on to say, no such weakening can be legitimate here. Verse 39 insists that it was for this reason, the Old Testament said so, that the people could not believe. Dear friends, this text exists to humble the pride of man. R.C. Sproul said, John does not settle for reporting, as I mentioned earlier. He goes on to editorializing, providing an explanation for why so many people rejected Jesus, despite his miracles, authoritative teaching, audible testimony from the Father from heaven. So now listen, with that in mind, our first point is the rejection of Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy, and I get it, beginning in verse 37. But though he had performed so many signs before them, yet they were not believing in him, this was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet which he spoke. So our first point is that the rejection of Jesus was in fulfillment of the Old Testament. And the first subpoint is verses 38, beginning of 39. What Old Testament? Well, first it's Isaiah 53. That's where verse 38 goes. Look at it. I don't know if your Bible capitalizes or offsets Old Testament quotations, but you need to learn as you're reading your Bible to recognize in the New Testament where it's citing the Old Testament. And typically, our translators and formatters of our English Bible help us. They'll somehow or another set off Old Testament quotations. When you see those, you need to look at either the little notation on the verse and see in your notes on the side or in your margin. Where, where does that Old Testament verse come from? Well, you could probably find where verse 38 comes from. This was to fulfill the word of Isaiah the prophet, which he spoke, Lord, who has believed our report? And to whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For this reason, they could not believe, verse 39 says. So verse 38 is a quote from Isaiah. I mean, John says the word of Isaiah the prophet, but where in Isaiah? That's the significant point. Verse 38 predicts that Israel would not believe. Verse 40 predicts that they could not believe. So our first subpoint is that Israel would not believe. Our second is that they could not believe. Verse 38 comes from where in the Old Testament? The answer is Isaiah 53, verse 1. It's one of Isaiah's famous servant songs. There are multiple servant songs in the latter portion of Isaiah. 
This song, Isaiah 53, is the most graphic Old Testament passage predicting the crucifixion and resurrection of the coming Messiah. Isaiah 53 has been referred to by many people as the fifth gospel. Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, Isaiah. It's so graphic, it's so clear that Isaiah 53 is evidently, abundantly, manifestly about Jesus of Nazareth and what he endured outside of Jerusalem on that Roman cross. And it was written 700 years before Jesus was born. But John drills so deep here. Although Isaiah laid out God's glorious promises of a coming Messiah, John is telling us the people to whom he came would not believe. Verse 38, Lord, who has believed our report? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? As I mentioned, that's a quotation from Isaiah 53.1, but I said John drills deeper. He wants, to, he wants us to understand that they would not believe, I said, because they could not believe. I've already said once, and may the Lord help me to say it again today, this passage exists to humble the pride of man. Look at verses 39 and 40. This is the could not. For this reason, they could not believe. For Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and he has hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and I heal them. Well, again, if your Bible helps you to discern where that quote comes from, John's already helped us in verse 39 by saying, Isaiah said again. So we know it's from Isaiah, and we know it's from another passage in Isaiah, but your Bible probably, uh, many many anyway, have have little marginal notes to let you know. Where where does that come from? Well, well, the first quote came from Isaiah 53. the, The greatest and clearest of all the servant songs about the Messiah, about Jesus, about his gospel labors. This one comes from, you can tell, Isaiah, uh, John chapter 12, verse 40, comes from Isaiah chapter 6, verse 10. He has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted and and I heal them. Well, let's just remind ourselves what's happening in Isaiah 6, verses 1 to 9, right before this quote. It's actually essential to understanding what John's about to say in the next verses. Here he quotes from Isaiah 6.10. Do you remember what happened in verses 1 through 9? I I know that many of you do, but let's all remind ourselves and and get back to the same page. In Isaiah 6, 1 through 9, the prophet sees the enthroned Lord of glory. In the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord high and exalted, enthroned, the train of his robe filling the temple. Isaiah goes on to say in that passage, not only did I see the glory of the exalted and enthroned Lord, but I saw the seraphs surrounding his throne, these angelic creatures, They look strange to our mental eye, but John tells us something that they look like. They have six wings. With two of their wings, they're covering their faces. With two of their wings, they're covering their feet. With the other two, they're flying. 
So they're not even looking, these, these holy angels who have never sinned. They were created holy, they remain holy. The only sinful angels are no longer angels, they're demons. They're irredeemable. Jesus didn't die for them. They can't be saved. Once rebelled, never redeemed. But these angels weren't them. They were remaining angelic. They're in the throne room of heaven. They're encircling the throne of Jesus. They're covering their face. Even the holy angels are uncovering their holy faces in the presence of the holiness of the Lord. He must be some kind of holy. And, and, And Isaiah tells us what they're saying. They're actually not even talking to him. He's of a categorical, different holiness that not only do they not look at him, they don't even talk to him. They do talk about him. They call out, Isaiah says, one to another. They're talking to each other. He, he is holy, holy, holy. The whole earth is full of his glory. That's what they're saying. And no sooner than Isaiah sees the vision of the grandeur and majesty and breathtaking beauty of the glory of the Lord and hears the angelic affirmation of his threefold holiness. There's nothing else in the Bible that's enumerated thrice. Love, 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 mercy, mercy. None of that. It's just holy through and through, holy through and through, holy, thrice holy, Trinitarian holiness, this superlative otherness that belongs to our God. No sooner than Isaiah sees and hears, he's decimated. He's devastated. He's absolutely ruined and wrecked. He doesn't start skipping and jumping and clapping his hands and praising. He gets on his face and he says, I'm undone. I'm unraveled. I'm disintegrated molecule by molecule. I'm absolutely wasted. I'm a sinful man. And as soon as he sees his absolute putrid depravity in comparison to the holiness of God, he instantaneously recognizes that all of his fellow men are in the exact same predicament. I'm a man of unclean lips, and all of my company, all the people I dwell among, are totally unclean. If you want to compare yourself to one another, you'll break your arm patting yourself on the back. But at the end of the day, the plumb line is Jesus. And every man stands or falls in comparison with him So Isaiah sees the glory of the Lord. He hears the angelic praise. He's absolutely arrested with his own sinfulness and the absolute torrent and tsunami of the sinfulness of every person who's ever lived in the entire earth. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. There's not one righteous person in the universe. And then... What happens in Isaiah 6, 1-9? An angel is dispatched from the one sitting on the throne to take tongs and get a coal from the altar, a burning, hot, incensed coal from the altar to pick it up with the tongs and to sear the lips of the prophet. 
to touch his tongue, to touch his mouth. Why? Because that's precisely where Isaiah saw his deepest depravity. I'm a man of total uncleanness in my lips. In fact, Isaiah was so painfully aware of his total depravity that even if he wanted to praise God, it would actually condemn him unless his lips were first cleansed. So that's where the angel touches him. It's a beautiful picture of the gospel of redemption that if your deepest point of wretchedness at the core part of what sets God apart from you and makes you unacceptable in his sight at that very point, at the deepest part of your deepest wretchedness, God touches, he touches the prophet there. And as soon as Isaiah understands something of the mercy of a burning sacrifice, a coal from the altar, that he didn't create, he didn't start, he didn't build the fire, he wasn't worshiping at the altar. God did it, God picked it up, God touched him. As soon as he begins to understand something of the mercy of God for a sinner such as him, he hears. What does he hear? He hears the Lord say, who will I send? Who will go for us? interpretation, paraphrase, I'm sure it's a weak one, but it's something like, who's going to go tell all these wretches that they're without hope? Who's going to tell them that unless God does for them what they can't do for themselves, they will never be acceptable in His holy presence? The holy angels don't even uncover their faces in the presence of His unmitigated holiness. If they were to pull back the, the feathers of their two wings covering their face, they would be incinerated. They would melt into angel puddle on the floor of heaven. Who's going to go tell all these sinful humans? We're talking holy angels don't even uncover their face. Who's going to go tell this whole world that they have? have to have a mediator to get into the presence of God. And do you remember what Isaiah said? Here I am, Lord. Send me. Then we get the verse John quotes. The, the verse John quotes in Jordan-esque paraphrase is God saying to Isaiah, good, go. Go. I'm sending you, you go. And nobody's going to listen to you. Nobody's going to believe your message. You see, it's not an indictment on the messenger when the audience doesn't receive the faithful proclamation of the message. Sometimes God raises up prophets to amplify the condemnation of those who reject the message. And God says to Isaiah, go. And Isaiah says, yes, sir. And then God says, nobody, nobody's going to listen to you. This is John's point. This is verse 39 and 40 of our text. For this reason, they could not believe because Isaiah said again, he has blinded their eyes and hardened their hearts so that they would not see with their eyes and perceive with their heart and be converted. And I heal them. Do you understand what John's saying about his fellow men? 
his contemporaries, his kinsmen according to the flesh, his, his Jewish counterparts. I'm telling you, John is saying, why they don't believe in Jesus. Why they don't entrust themselves to Him as their Messiah. Because God blinded their eyes. Because God hardened their heart. D.A. Carson said, God commands Isaiah to undertake this ministry in the full knowledge that the results will be negative. It is no indictment on Isaiah that nobody believed his message. Fruitfulness and faithfulness are two different categories in the economy of God. Carson goes on to say, indeed such preaching to these people evokes a negative response. In some sense, Isaiah's preaching is the cause of their negative response. You know what a lot of people say about the true preaching of the gospel? Now listen, we got nothing but fallible messengers. It's all God has to work with. But you know what a lot of people say. Some of you may have said it. You probably have friends that you've heard say it. We live in a generation where it's just coming out constantly like water from a fire hydrant. People say I'm not going to believe that message because of the person who's delivering it or the way they're delivering it. Why couldn't Israel believe? Because God had issued what's known as a remedial judgment on Israel. Sproul calls it a judicial verdict against sinful Israel. You see, in Isaiah's day, Israel had long rejected God's gracious warning. They had long rejected His reproving. You see, in Isaiah's day, 700 years before Jesus was born, the Lord had extended His long-suffering patience toward Israel time and time and time again. Like in their wilderness wanderings, He, he just is benevolent to them. He's good to them. He's a provider for them. He constantly is revealing himself to them, but they spurned him. They rejected him. They hardened their hearts against him. They would not turn to him in true repentance and contrition. They would not receive his grace. It's like Romans 1. So what does God do? He gives them over to their own desires. That, that's the way you want to go? It's not God causing them to sin. James 1 is clear about that. It's Him removing His hand of restraining grace from their life. If you won't hear my overtures of love for you, if you won't look deep into this heart that beats passionately to provide for you a Redeemer, if you're going to continue to put your fist in my face like Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden and tell me, you will not rule over me. I will be my own God. You will not tell me what to do. Eventually, God removes His hand of restraining grace. He will leave you to your own devices. He will pull back His intervening grace, preventing you from running headlong into sin. Like Israel, God had removed His hand of support from beneath the gravitational pull of the rebellion against Him. The only reason they hadn't gone further into sin prior is because God had His hand under their life and He simply removed it. 
And they plummeted deeper and deeper into their entrenched rebellion against their Creator and the one who promised to send their Redeemer. Again, this is not the same thing as God causing them to sin and rebel. The rebellion is entirely their fault. It's not God's. And John wants us to know that the reason Israel rejected Jesus, the contemporary Jews of his day, is because God had Romans 1 given them over. He gave them over to their depraved heart. Like Old Testament Israel, the Lord Jesus had given repeated signs of God's promise to send a Savior in Himself. The seven signs of John's Gospel, the water to wine, a chapter earlier, Lazarus being raised from the dead. What else do you need? They had heard His teaching, His words of Gospel love. What else do you need? But they were blind. And John wants us to know it's not happenstance. They were blind from seeing Jesus for who he is and receiving him as their long-awaited Savior because they, like Old Testament Israel in Isaiah's day, were under God's remedial judgment. The only reason, I should say the ultimate reason, people do not see Jesus for who he is, the one who radiates the glory of God the one who possesses the exact nature of God. That's Hebrews 1.3. The ultimate reason, 2 Corinthians tells us, is because Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelieving so that they cannot see the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Christ. If you don't see Jesus as the most beautiful, compelling, magnetic person in the universe, if you don't see him as somebody who's got a golden winch Tied to your heart, that's Hebrews 6, the anchor of your soul, lodged in heaven, pulling you to God. If you don't see Jesus as the sum total of God's saving mercies to you, 2 Corinthians 4 says there's an ultimate reason. Satan blinded you. He blinded your mind so that you can't see what you ought to see. The theme of God's sovereignty over the rejection of Jesus is strong in John's gospel. It's not that God can't overpower Satan, it's that God has taken his hand off people's lives and he gets to do his bidding. We know that God is sovereign. John can't get this out of his mouth. In chapter three, why can't Nicodemus enter the kingdom of heaven? He can't see it and he can't enter it until he's born again. That supernatural intervention, a divine light dispatched from heaven called the Holy Spirit who invades your life and flames the dungeon of your dark heart with the glory and gospel love of Jesus until you're regenerated, brought from death to life, born again. That's what Jesus said. You can't even see, let alone enter, that's John 3, verses 3 and 5, the kingdom of God. When Jesus is teaching and people are absolutely enraged, We're told in the text I'm about to cite, they wanted to kill him because of what he said. Do you know what he said to those people? Nobody can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws them. 
You can't do it on your own. That's John 6, 44. And I'm telling you the same thing's true today. Unless the almighty king of the universe who flung the galaxies into existence by saying a word, unless he reaches his mighty hand out of heaven down into your little heart and pulls you to Jesus, you cannot come. This theme is so replete in the Old Testament. Who hardened Pharaoh's heart? Pharaoh did, unless you keep reading. We're told no less than half a dozen times that God did it. Both are responsible. If you're going to continue to run in your rebellion, your heart is getting harder and harder, more and more calloused, more and more entrenched in your rebellion against Jesus, and you're presuming on His mercy to suppose He's going to give you tomorrow. Eventually, like Pharaoh, God starts hardening. Concerning verse 39, for this reason they could not believe. R.C. Sproul said something about this verse that it's such inflammatory terminology. I'm going to tell you what Sproul said, and I'm going to tell you what I mean if I were to have used the same sentence as Sproul. He's not trying to be shock value. He's not trying to use inflammatory terminology. I'm going to tell you what he said, and I'm going to tell you what I would mean if I said the same sentence. For this reason, they could not believe, quote R.C. Sproul, this brings us back once again to the relentless Calvinism of the Apostle John. That's what Sproul said. Relentless Calvinism? Calvin didn't live until the 1500s. We're talking about the first century. John was not a Calvinist. I would say that. I would also say Jesus was not one. But if you go read those reformers like Calvin and others on passages like this, I would not say Jesus is a Calvinist or John is a Calvinist. I would say that Calvin was a Jesusist. And John was a Jesusist because nobody talks more about the absolute, indisputable sovereignty of God in human salvation than Jesus. Do you want to know what he said to his best friends? His closest followers. The people who knew him better than most of the people in this room. He said, unless a camel can go through the eye of a needle, nobody gets into heaven. You know what the disciples said to Jesus after that? Who then can be saved? You know what Jesus said to the disciples in response to that question? With man, it is impossible, but not with God. And you want to talk about a verse that's absolutely horrifically abused in our day. Jesus goes on to say, all things are possible with God. You know that does not mean like giving you a new house and a new car and a smooth life and good relationships. That means salvation. It's impossible with man. But even the rescue of rebels is possible with God. He must be some kind of awesome if He can uphold the honor of His integrity and save your depraved soul in a way that does not diminish His glory and does not cause you to turn into a puddle on the floor of heaven. How can that be? There's a mediator. There's an almighty redeemer. There's a sovereign king who, by the way, got up off that throne that Isaiah saw way back in Isaiah chapter 6. He stood up. He dismounted the throne. Peter tells us that the angels were stupefied. What's happening? Where's he going? What's he doing? 
He stood up off the throne, and He came sent by the Holy Spirit into the womb of the Virgin Mary, born through the Virgin Mary, lived the life that you and I were supposed to live, the one that all the angels had ever praised. And do you know that Hebrews 1 says, the locus of the focus moved from heaven to earth when Jesus came incarnate. For the first time ever in all of eternity, since they were created, the angels turned their attention from heaven down to earth when Hebrews 1 says, when God brought the firstborn into the world, he turned around to all the angels, I'm quoting Hebrews 1, and said, all the angels of God worship him. They kept worshiping the same one they had been worshiping from eternity past, from the time of their creation. And this Jesus lived the life, perfect, impeccable sinlessness, always loving the Lord his God with all of his heart, soul, mind, and strength, always loving his neighbor as himself, constantly revealing God. No one has seen God at any time, but the only begotten God, Jesus, who is in the heart of the Father, he has explained God to you. If you've seen Jesus, John 14, you have seen God. He came and showed God to us, and then he took his divine human life and was absolutely mutilated in the torture that the Roman soldiers enacted upon him before they pinned him like a piece of meat to a cross outside the city of Jerusalem between two thieves. They had stripped him naked, one of the gospel writers tell us. They humiliated him as deeply as they possibly could. They hurled insults at him. They spit on him. Grown men hit him in his face. They pressed a crown of thorns into his skull plate. They wrapped before that a purple robe around him. They knelt down. They mocked him. And when he was on the cross, they said, if, if, if God is your father, come on down and then we'll believe in you. Guess what? He wasn't there for their belief. That's what Isaiah's talking about. That's what John's talking about. Their hearts had been so hard. God had been so enduring and patient and benevolent. His loving kindness had been poured out time and time and time again. He had given them ample opportunity to repent. And now, too late. Sin will take you further than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay. And in the end, it will ruin you eternally. In the end, these people are totally responsible for their inexcusable rejection of Jesus. There's no reason they should have rejected him. And God is totally sovereign over those who rejected his son. Both are true. And that leads us to the final subpoint in John 12. John grabs both of these quotes, Isaiah 53. Isaiah 6, he squeezes them together and he says, verse 41, these things Isaiah said because he saw his glory and spoke of him. So the these things has to be Isaiah 53 and Isaiah 6. So the question now becomes the pronoun and the antecedent. Who is the his and the him? because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Isaiah said, Isaiah 6, Isaiah said, Isaiah 53, because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Who is the his and the him? 
One commentator puts it so well, I'll just read it to you. The crux of the argument John makes concerns not God the Father, but God the Son. There is much in this text to incline us to conclude that when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, Isaiah 6, he was beholding the pre-incarnate Logos, the one whom God would send into the world to redeem us. He saw Christ on the throne in his glory before Christ was even born. I think that is what John is declaring here. I couldn't agree more. One reason, and I won't walk you through them, I commend it to you for your meditation. In John chapter 12, there are no less than 10 connections to Isaiah 53. In John 12 alone. And in almost every one of the 10, John draws the line straight to Jesus. So when he says in verse 41, Isaiah saw His glory and spoke of Him, we could just theologically get to Christ because Jesus said, nobody's ever seen God. And Isaiah said, I saw the Lord. But we can also textually, exegetically get to Christ from John chapter 12, pulling out of the language of the passage that two verses earlier, he's clearly talking about Jesus. And so here, it stands to reason that the glory that Isaiah saw was, yes, the glory of God, but particularly the glory of the enthroned Son of God, the only visible person of the Trinity. I believe that John is saying in Isaiah 41 that Isaiah, 700 years before Jesus was born, saw the glory of Jesus in Isaiah chapter 6. But the main thing I want to lay before you as I close is this. What was the consequence of seeing the glory of Jesus for Isaiah? Saying. Therefore, he said these things because of what he saw. That's why the title of our sermon is Seeing and Saying. When Isaiah saw Jesus' glory, he said what he saw. Verse 41, Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory spilling over into words about the indescribable beauty, perfections, magnificence, saving love of Jesus is the consequence of seeing His glory. You talk about what you love. I talk about whatever I love. Everybody's an evangelist. Evangelism is not hard. It's inevitable. And if our hearts are captured, like Isaiah's, by the beauty and glory and holiness and magnitude and saving sufficiency of Jesus, if our hearts are captured like John's with the beauty and glory and holiness and magnitude and saving sufficiency of Jesus, we will talk about Him. Isaiah said these things because he saw His glory. And so the need of the hour is to get back into the throne room Notice verse 42 and 43. Nevertheless, many even of the rulers believed in him. But John's going to explain what he means by that now. But because of the Pharisees, they were not confessing him for fear that they would be put out of the synagogue for they loved the approval of men rather than the approval of God. They loved. John tells us their motive. He lets us see what we don't have eyes to see. Under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, he tells us their controlling motive. They love 
They love this. They love the approval of men more than the approval of God. Do you know why people were so big to them? Because God was so small to them. But when you begin to see Isaiah's vision of God in Christ, when you begin to see John's portrait of God in Christ, and God becomes indescribably, incomprehensibly gigantic to you, then people become small. When God is big, people are small. When people are big, it's because your view of God is small. So why does John include this passage in his gospel? Why does he tell us that all these people rejected their Savior because Isaiah told us that they would? He actually tells us why he put it in the passage, why he put it in his gospel. He he says at the end of his gospel, I wrote all of this, and I told you all of Jesus' signs, so that you would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, John 20, verse 30, and that believing you would have life in His name. He's telling you, a lot of people don't believe, here's the reason, but I'm writing all of this so that you will believe, and so that you will have life in His name. He wants you to come to the Jesus who died the death you deserved, and as we're soon to see, rose again with life forevermore, ready to dispense to anybody who would come to Him by faith, anybody who would turn from their sin and their self-deification, making you God, and would say, oh, I now see the glory of the risen Jesus. But in a way, even more pristine, even more compelling than Isaiah saw, because I see the glory of the risen Jesus. I see the glory of the one who came and died the death that I should have and rose again to life forevermore to bring me into the presence of God favorably forever. And do you know what's gonna be different between you and the angels when you see him in his risen glory? But we all, with unveiled face, Beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord are being transformed. Regeneration covers you with the asbestos righteousness of Jesus Christ so that you can go straight before the face of God in a way that's even more glorious than the angels. And you get to look upon him forever, face to face, because of how great he is. Oh, that we would believe. Let's pray together. Father, I do thank you that we get the privilege of looking over 700 years of redemptive history and taking a glance at the glory of Christ. And now our prayer is that we would all throw ourselves into his arms afresh. For those who've walked with Jesus for a long time, I pray that there'd be a fresh, favorable encounter with him seeing His glory and telling everybody within earshot how wonderful He is. And for those who've never yet trusted Him before today, oh, how we ask that You would send that sweet gospel dart right out of heaven into a heart, and You would do what You did for Lydia in the book of Acts. You would open 
someone's heart to believe. You would show them that Jesus is the Savior they so desperately need and the one who satisfies more deeply than anything or anyone else. Thank you for Jesus. We pray this in his name. Amen.